Amen to that. We have lots to celebrate, don't we, Bethel? Praise God for all those tremendous examples of growth and of faith that were demonstrated in the waters of Lake Michigan just a week ago today. And God is doing some wonderful things in our church. He's doing some wonderful things in the lives of our people here. But we also have some, some challenges, don't we? We also have some problems. And I'd like to speak about one of those problems today. The message today is a very simple outline. I'd like to begin by first identifying a key problem sometimes within the church and then proceed to offer two biblical solutions to that problem. So, very simple, very straightforward. One problem, two solutions. And although the, mess- the subject of this message is rather straightforward, I think it is a very significant one. Because this problem is something that is often present to some degree in every church congregation. You see, most churches have people, individuals, who are afflicted with this problem. Sometimes entire churches are held hostage by it. Other times this problem becomes so corruptive and so damaging that it erodes the spiritual vitality and the spiritual life of entire denominations. A few problems can be more damaging to the church than this one. It's a problem that is also very deceptive and easily ignored. Because at an initial glance, it doesn't really seem like a problem at all. It's a problem I've seen some of the lives here at Bethel. And truthfully, it has been a problem at points in my own life. And if you are honest with yourself and you've walked with Christ for many years, you probably would resonate that this problem has been true in some way at some point in your life. It's the problem of being on a spiritual plateau. And the term spiritual plateau is probably the best term I can think of to describe what is a very real and very harmful phenomenon in American Christianity. It's a phenomenon that I think is probably, at least for some of us, true in our lives here today. And for me to define for you what I mean by a spiritual plateau, the first thing I need to do is is help us all remember what is God's purpose for the church. I mean, have you ever stopped to wonder, God, why have you created the church? I mean, why go to such lengths to rescue and redeem fallen sinners? God, why have you bothered to establish such an imperfect church? I mean, why have a community of people who are so flawed, so corruptible, so petty? I mean, couldn't you have done a better job? I mean, I I know, Jesus, you refer to the church as your bride, but truthfully, I mean, it seems to me your bride, well, she's quite homely. I mean, despite all of her efforts, she's hardly beautiful at all compared to you. Her face is full of white putrid zits exploding all over the place. Body odor so offensive, dung beetles won't come near her. A case of bad breath so terrible that any self-respecting groom would sooner kiss a herd of swine. And why, Jesus, do you continue to build your church so gradually and so slowly? Why not return just right now so we can be done with all the imperfections and failings? Why not just rapture us all the way to heaven right now, be done with all the acne and halitosis? I mean, wouldn't that be better? Why do you wait? Why do you delay? These are serious questions, and I think all of them have their answers in God's purpose for the church. And at its most basic core, of course, the purpose of the church is to bring glory and honor to God. This is the purpose of all things, including the earth itself and the heavens and the angelic realm and you and me. Romans eleven thirty six says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So everything that has existence has existence. It's been made for God's glory. And this purpose extends to the church as well. Describing those who are part of the church, Paul writes this in Ephesians 1. He says, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Later on in chapter 3, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And of course, 1 Corinthians 10.31, that says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all 
to the glory of God. So the most basic purpose of the church is the glory of God. But how does the church do this? How does the church go about bringing glory to God, especially when it is so fallen and so imperfect? Thankfully, immediately after these statements in the Bible that, that the church exists for God's glory, Paul continues by describing the means by which that glory is achieved. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 is immediately followed by this passage, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, that says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or the verse in Ephesians is said, To him be glory in the church, in Jesus Christ through all generations. That's followed by this passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. Or we could go to passages like 1 John 2, 6. That says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, what's the similar theme of these passages? It's that we are to be imitators. Imitators of God and imitators of Christ. To have God-likeness in our lives. To have Christ-likeness in our lives. And all throughout the Bible, we're commanded to live holy and righteous lives. Lives that imitate the character and the qualities of God. Lives that walk like Jesus. So that those in the church, they're increasingly being changed. To become more, more like God. To become more like Jesus. So that when the world looks at the church, you know what the world sees? The world looks at the church and they see all... A million little Jesuses just all running around. There you are, just all these little Jesuses just scurrying all around. That's what the world ought to see as it looks at the church. And of course, this is the fundamental way that God is glorified. That is, people imitate him. Because when we imitate something, we bring glory to it. I said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And any of you who are parents, you understand this well, don't you? I mean, children are wonderful imitators, aren't they? Often... Do you find them saying the things you say, doing the things you do? Sometimes this is problematic. Like when my four-year-old daughter and one of her friends suddenly decide, you know, hey, I think we want to put on some makeup like mommy. But instead of putting on makeup, they use a black marker and color all over their face. Or when I return home from a day at the office and my four-year-old greets me at the door and says, Hi, Brad. Welcome home, sweetie. Imitation is certainly interesting at times, but it is often wonderful, like when your children imitate your commendable qualities, and they mirror your expressions of gratitude and kindness, compassion and faith. Doing so brings honor to you, because imitating something praiseworthy brings glory to the thing being imitated. And so the most fundamental way that we, members of God's church, glorify God is to imitate him, to increasingly look like a bunch of little Jesuses just all running around. Of course, the problem is, Last time I checked, none of you here look perfectly like Jesus. I've yet to find a spitting image of Jesus here in this church, or anywhere for that matter. You see, we're all works in progress, aren't we? We're all growing, or at least should be growing, into Christ's likeness. We all should be being increasingly transformed into his image. And this transformation, it is a process. A process that takes time and energy and effort. A process that is hard, sometimes grueling. But a process that brings incredible joy and delight. This transforma- transformation is described well in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
See, all genuine believers, as they see the glory of God, of Christ, they are being transformed into his image. And we call this process sanctification. Sanctification is defined by one prominent theologian as this. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. I think that's pretty good. So sanctification happens as we continually shed the sin and the rebellion of a life without Christ and we progressively put on Christ's likeness. It happens as we do Romans 13, 4 that says, Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And therefore, sanctification should be that of an upward climb. We start out, you know, not looking like Jesus at all. But as we live our lives, we move upwards towards becoming increasingly more like him. And as a result, we give increasingly, increasing glory to God. Now, in truth, there are times when we grow more significantly than others. There may be even periods of our life where we stagnate or decline a little bit. So this sanctification process, it has its ups and downs. It has its hills and valleys. But overall, it is a lot of up. The holistic pattern of our lives needs to be one of upward growth towards increasingly reflecting Christ's image. And this should continue throughout our entire lives until the moment that we die, upon which God completes the transformation. For as we meet Christ face to face, the trappings of sin will be forever done away with, and God will make us perfectly into Christ's image. And this process of sanctification, I think, is pictured very well in this graph. Where you see, before having faith in Christ, we're dead in our sins. Not growing in Christ's likeness at all. But after becoming a Christian, God begins a transformative work that moves us increasingly towards holiness. Now, there are inevitable bumps in the road with some periods of growth and maybe even some decline. But the overall trend is one of growth. And this process ends in our death when our sanctification is perfected and we are fully transformed into Jesus' image. I like to think of this sanctification process like climbing a mountain. Now, many of you don't know this about me, but I'm actually a pretty outdoorsy kind of guy. I really like being out in God's creation and doing all sorts of outdoors activities, but perhaps not in the way that some of you might think. For example, I do not own, nor will I ever own, a fishing rod, or a hunting rifle. I mean, fishing and hunting are not my idea of a good time in the outdoors. I mean, let's think about those activities for a minute. First, first they involve remaining totally stationary for long periods of time. I mean, just sitting there. Sometimes trying to move as little as humanly possible. I mean, how incredibly boring. How much fun can that be? I just don't get it. I mean, sleeping sounds like more fun to me. At least you get to dream. And second, when hunting or fishing, so often you spend hours, the hours you spend just sitting there, they're wasted in total futility. You don't catch anything. You don't shoot anything. Listen, technology's involved. We have grocery stores for this kind of thing. <laughs> See, when I'm outdoors, I want to be moving. I want to be going someplace. I'm an adventurer and I want to be exploring new territory, constantly moving towards some new and exciting place. And I have a couple of buddies Go back all the way to high school. And to this day, every year or so, we take a long road trip out into the wilderness someplace. And we camp. And we hike. And we live off the land. And we seek places of natural beauty that are completely isolated from civilization. Preferably with big cliffs to climb and caves to explore and rapids to conquer. And there we engage in all sorts of death-defying hijinks. 
I'm always somewhat reluctant to tell my wife about these trips, lest I be forbidden from ever taking one of them again. But now in our adventures, we have hiked a few mountains. A few outdoorsman experiences get my blood flowing more than the pursuit of a distant summit high up a mountain. The journey there, it is hard. And the terrain is uneven, with little peaks and valleys along the way. So it's up and down and up and down. But most of all, it's a lot of up. And your legs start to burn and you sweat and your body aches. But when you reach the summit, all the work and all the toil is totally worth it. We are all on a journey of climbing upward in our Christian lives, of ascending a mountain of spiritual growth. And our goal is to reach Christ, who is at the summit. Like climbing a mountain, our journey is long and it is hard. It is full of long periods of ascent, maybe even some periods of short descent. But when you reach the summit, everything you have endured to get there was worth it. There's an interesting feature on many mountains, however. It's called a plateau. Now, a plateau is a flat and even place. They're often found alongside of a steep mountain. The path becomes very level, very even for a while. When you're hiking a mountain, you come to a plateau, it is very easy going. In fact, it's It's been a particularly difficult climb. You're really tempted to just camp out on the plateau and stay there. It's comfortable being on a plateau. It's not challenging at all. In many ways, it's quite nice. But there's one problem with remaining on a plateau. Doing so never gets you any closer to the summit. And friends, so many Christians live their lives on a spiritual plateau. They have climbed for a while but they have tired of the journey. And so they decide just to coast, to take it easy. They get to a place of comfort and they are happy to remain there. Now they're careful not to fall off the plateau into a valley, but they aren't really driven to leave the plateau in pursuit of the summit again. And the result of this is that their sanctification flatlines. They're not growing. They're not changing. They remain where it's safe where it is comfortable. From a distance, those who look at them think they're doing quite well because in truth, they're actually quite a ways up the mountain. But they aren't motivated for the climb anymore. And as they camp out on the plateau, every day they become further and further entrenched. Each day it becomes more difficult to think about climbing again. This is a problem in the church. The long-term consequences of remaining on a spiritual plateau are terrible. People who do so, their faith becomes stale. Their excitement about Jesus and God's word steadily diminishes. They don't grow in holiness or Christ-likeness. Their prayer life doesn't deepen. Their service to the Lord doesn't expand. And the Christian life becomes routine rather than the exciting adventure it ought to be. And there they just sit, waiting, coasting, Eventually, they don't even gaze up at the summit anymore. They no longer see the struggle of the climb as worth it. In their mind, they've come far enough. They're content with the progress they've made. Because the plateau, despite all of its imperfections, has become perfectly acceptable. And besides, they know someday a helicopter is going to arrive and lift them right to the summit anyway. So why even try to get there any more themselves? 
And the result of this is that individuals fail to reach their full potential in Christ. They rob themselves of joy because every step upward is a step closer to the summit, which is the greatest place of joy on the entire mountain. Life eventually becomes all about them and their comforts on the plateau rather than about the journey and the challenge of reaching the peak. And perhaps worst of all, the complacency in their Christian journey brings God's displeasure upon them. One group of people who famously leveled out on a spiritual plateau is the church of Laodicea. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to this lackluster bunch of believers and says these harsh words to them. He says in chapter 3, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of your mouth, out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Here's a church who has experienced some upward growth in the past, but they eventually came to a point of stagnation. They, they lost sight of Christ and were totally content in themselves. They said, I need nothing. They thought they had arrived. And their spiritual stagnation meant that they were no longer fulfilling God's given purpose for their life, which is to become more like Christ and in doing so bring great glory to him. And so Jesus issued to them this firm rebuke. I will spit you out of my mouth, he says. God does not approve of Christians who camp out on spiritual plateaus. Being a place of flatline growth is a place you do not want to be. So we see that this problem is of great significance. Hinders our ability to achieve our purpose and to glorify God. It brings God's judgment. It steals our joy. This is a problem. Is it true in your life? In any way, is it true? Now that you understand the problem, what is the biblical solution? I told you from the beginning of this message that there are two. And the first you're not going to like. It's this. Embrace suffering. Embrace suffering. The experience of suffering when coupled with faith should produce a growth of sanctification within us. And Paul makes this very clear as he reflects on his own suffering in Romans chapter 5 when he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This text teaches that hardships and trials produce character and Christ-likeness in us. And Paul writes that it's suffering, it produces endurance, and that endurance produces character, which is the Christ-likeness. And that character produces hope or faith in God's sufficiency amid the trial. And for this reason, Paul is able to say that he does not loathe his suffering, he rejoices in it. We rejoice in our sufferings. He writes, Paul knows that his hardships are sanctifying him. He knows there are means that God is using to grow him into Christ's likeness. And so Paul is able to respond to his sufferings with faith and with joy. Now, many stories can be told about how this has been true in the lives here at Bethel. I've seen many families endure terrible grief and hardship. The sudden death of a loved one. Extended period of unemployment or financial burden. An imploding marriage. Frightening and painful bout with cancer. I've seen moments that have been hard. Very, very, very hard. 
But through these experiences, suffering in many ways, in many cases, I have seen Christ-likeness and faith in people's lives enriched in remarkable ways. For as they suffer, their resolve to live fully for Christ is strengthened. And this makes sense, doesn't it? When we get to a point of desperate need, who do we turn to? See, all of a sudden, Christians who were content on a plateau, they suddenly start gazing towards the summit again. And the forward march of growth resumes in new and powerful ways. This is one of God's fundamental purposes in suffering. So if you have suffered a very difficult tragedy or season in your life, hopefully you're able to reflect on that and see how God has used that to lead to your sanctification. Or if you're in a place of suffering right now, your challenge is not to fight God in that trial, but to let him do a sanctifying work in you through it. To let your suffering be something that God uses to draw you closer to himself. To let the reality of the brevity of life inspire you to make the most of your days. To have the suffering increase within you a resolve not to waste your time camping out on a spiritual plateau. Don't quench the good work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life through suffering by being bitter or angry or depressed. See your suffering as a tool that God can use to further your own sanctification. And with that focus, even amid the pain, then there will be joy. God uses your suffering to make you more like Jesus. That's the first way to get off a spiritual plateau. To embrace suffering. But what if you're not in a major point of suffering right now? I mean, that application seems pretty useless, doesn't it? I mean, who, who here is going to go out today and intentionally find a way, a way to suffer? And unless you have some strange, almost sadistic bent to you, I don't think anyone's probably going to go out and seek out suffering, are you? But even if you're not in a place of real hardship, real crisis right now, we all have some maybe less dramatic ways that we suffer in our lives. Even things like struggling in parenting or happiness in your job or tension in your family. God can use all of these areas of suffering to further conform us into Christ's likeness. So let him do that. See all of your sufferings as a tool that God can use to conform your character to Christ and to build your faith. Do that and you will step off the plateau and begin climbing the mountain again. That's the first key way to really restart a spiritually stagnant life. Embrace suffering. And here's the second. Increase or deepen Christian activity. Increase or deepen Christian activity. Basically, you know, get more involved in living out and expressing your faith in tangible ways. Or go deeper and richer in the Christian activities that you currently have. Now, a lot could be said about this point. And I want to use the remaining time we have here to get very, very practical by giving you several different ways that if you are somewhat stuck on a spiritual plateau, you can increase your Christian activity and thereby resume your upwards climb towards Christ's likeness. And all these things, they fall into really three broad categories. They happen to be pictured right on these banners. Exalt, experience, engage. These three different categories define for every Christian what ought to be the priorities of their life. They define what healthy Christianity looks like. So a healthy Christian is exalting Christ with their life, primarily through experiences of worship and of prayer and of study of the word. And this happens corporately in worship services like this, but also individually in private devotional times. They're experiencing fellowship with others. 
so that none of us, no Christian, is living the Lone Ranger lifestyle. They are all in deep, edifying, challenging relationships that are encouraging and pushing us to climb higher up that mountain. They're also engaging in ministry. All of us have gifts. And all Christians should be using those to serve one another, to build the church, and also to boldly share and demonstrate the gospel to everyone around us. Now, these are the broad categories of Christian activity that everyone should be regularly, I would say weekly, weekly, experiencing in rich and meaningful ways. Exalt, experience, engage. So do you want to get growing in new and exciting ways? Do you want to get off a spiritual plateau? Then get more involved in the church. Get going deeper and doing Christian things by doing things that are both private, like deeper Bible study, deeper prayer times, etc., and also things within the church community. And this just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, clearly, it's the solution to stagnation. I mean, what if you feel stagnant in your job, or your marriage, or your career, or your business? What do you do? You just keep, you just keep doing the same things you've always done? Now you try to, you mix it up a bit. You give yourself new challenges. You start to work harder. You invest more time. Now, for the sake of our time here, I, I'm going to focus on the things you can do within the context of our church community of faith rather than just, just the personal private things, although those are essentially important. And before I, I get specific and give some concrete ways that you can increase or deepen your Christian activity, I need to address first a few objections. See, whenever people hear, you need to get more involved in the church. You need to make more time to do this particular or go deeper in this particular Christian thing. Two objections are commonly raised. First, I, I don't have time for that. I don't have the time. And the second, you know, I, that's not really that important or essential. I'm doing just fine as it is. Really? Well, let's see what God's word says about those objections in this passage. Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, speaking of the corporate church body. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, all the more as you see the day approaching. Now notice how this text describes the importance of Christians doing the things of God together. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Apparently, some people in the early church were saying, you know, life is pretty busy. And I've got a lot to do. And it's hard for me to find more time to be involved in Christian activity or things of the church. And besides, doing so is not really that important anyways. I mean, I have my faith already. I can do this alone. I can go on this journey my, by myself. I don't, I don't need to be doing lots of things within the church. Besides, climbing this mountain it isn't really that hard. And the author of Hebrews couldn't disagree more. So he issued a strong command that we not neglect living out our Christian faith together. Do not give up meeting together, he says. Now, why does he say this? He says it because he knows that the church is necessary for our sanctification. Look what else the passage says. One purpose of the church is to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. What does he mean by that? It means that the church exists to encourage and to challenge one another to be more like Jesus. The church's purpose is to push one another on towards sanctification. The author is saying, you need the church to help you do this. Don't neglect it. And so what are those objections? The first objection, I don't have time. This is certainly understandable. We all live hectic, hurried lives. Sometimes fitting in something else into our schedule seems impossible. And perhaps it is. 
Perhaps it is impossible to fit more into your day. Therefore, perhaps something needs to be cut so that you can do more of the things that will actually produce sanctification in your life. You see, if you're on a spiritual plateau, the only way to get off it is to make some time to start hiking again. Which means that some of the activities that take our time now need to be cut. Perhaps it's some recreational thing, a dumb time waster in your life. Perhaps you need to do something as radical as get a different job because the work is too consuming. You know, I'd hate to stand before God someday and have him ask me, you know, why didn't you make more time to do things that produce Christ-likeness in you? And my only answer was, well, my job was just too consuming. For some reason, I don't think that's going to cut it. See, there's always alternatives, even if they're radical and they require sacrifices. And frankly, if I can be honest, as I look at it as our church, I think one of the most pressing things in our schedule is this. It's our kids. See, we fill our days constantly going and running from one event to that other, taking care of our kids or our grandkids, and, and they all have three different sports teams they're a part of or six different activity clubs. And We drive ourselves mad trying to ensure that our children have every possible experience we think will be enriching to them. But here's the problem with that. When we're so busy taking care of our kids that we don't have time to do what is necessary to enrich our own spiritual lives, we end up damaging our kids because we don't give them what they need most. You know what your children need most? It's not another sporting event or recreational activity. It's not another exciting vacation or educational experience. What your kids need most are parents who deeply love God who dramatically mirror Christ to them. Parents who are never stuck in a place of spiritual stagnation. Remember, children are great imitators. They will imitate the faith and the priorities of their parents. So you want spiritually stagnant kids? Then give them so many activities that you have no time yourself to prioritize spiritually enriching things for you. As a result, you'll reach a spiritual plateau, which your children will see. And will imitate themselves. We need to model for our children what is most important. A vibrant faith. A life of deep involvement in the church with right Christian priorities. A life that is a picture of Jesus. So don't rationalize bad spiritual modeling to to your children by hiding behind busyness. If busyness is hurting you spiritually, it is hurting your children spiritually as well. So yes, we're busy. But let's remember... Our fundamental purpose in this life is to take this journey into Christ's likeness, to climb this mountain. Every, this comes first. Everything else is secondary. So don't tell me you don't have time. You can make time. And the other objection, I don't need the church for this. I don't need to get more involved to progress further in my own spiritual walk. I can do this on my own. Well, yes, you need to do individual things like personal Bible study and prayer, etc. But, but you need the church. We need one another. The author of Hebrews said this very well when he said, Do not forsake meeting together. You see, the climb is difficult. It is hard. And without taking others on this journey with you, you will stagnate. You will plateau. Show me a Christian who embarks on this journey alone and I will guarantee you they will get lost in the wilderness. But if you show me a Christian that is charging towards the summit, I will guarantee you that their life is full of all sorts of Christian activity and ministry and fellowship. Now, having answered these objections, hopefully, let's get very specific. Some particular ways you can increase your Christian activity 
particularly in the church. Start with exalt. Now, a lot could be said about this point, such as the need to attend church services every week, or maybe to actually be on time, perhaps early, or to actually sing out in our worship, or to take notes during the sermon, or to evaluate your worship services differently. Not ask, not ask of yourself afterwards, you know, did I enjoy that service? Did I, did I find it personally uplifting? Instead, we should be asking, did I please God with my worship today? How did I fare under the preaching of God's word today? See, but worship services and preaching, while essentially important, they'll only get you so far in your upwards climb towards Christ-likeness. You need much more to grow. In fact, the numerical growth that this church has expanded isn't in and of itself is not a sign of deep spiritual growth. You see, when worship services expand numerically, all that means is that more people have decided to climb the mountain. An expanding church doesn't mean that anyone is necessarily any closer to the summit. Worship services and preaching, while a primary driver in sanctification, will only cause you to grow so far. And if that's all you have in your diet of Christian activity, eventually, most certainly, you will stagnate on a spiritual plateau. And that's why some of these other two, we need some of these other two E's to help us in this journey. Start with the third one, engage. Get involved in working to build God's kingdom. And again, much could be said on this point. If you want to jumpstart a spiritually stagnant life, here's a great way to do it. Use your gifts to serve. And serve weekly. Every week. Not just the once a month I'll do it because I have to kind of get it out of the way sort of thing. See, I don't think using your gifts to serve once a month really will really grow you. It needs to be a weekly, every week commitment to shoulder kingdom responsibilities. And whether that happens through a weekly commitment to serve within the church or to volunteer within the community or to engage your neighbors or a combination of all of that, I don't care. We just need to do it. If you do it regularly, weekly, even daily, losing your gifts to serve, to build God's kingdom, you will grow from it. And you also need to pursue deeper levels of ministry responsibility. See, we all have it within our nature to gravitate to what is easy and to stay there. And the same is true for ministry. We find something that's easy to do and we just keep doing it because it's comfortable, because it's safe and it feels good and we can check it off. But if it's not challenging, it's not going to help you grow. Listen, just serving in ministry, it's not enough. You need to stretch yourself By taking on new challenges, new opportunities. Don't just sit there and coast in a place of ministry that is comfortable. Seek out opportunities to serve the body of Christ in ways of greater substance, depth, responsibility. Reach out to those around you in your community with increased boldness and risk. Put yourself in a place where you might fail. And depend on God's strength to help you be successful in that role. Grow in ministry and you will grow in Christ-likeness. Not to the other E, experience. Now, as a small group pastor here, this subject is my bread and butter. My role here at the church is to provide as best I can opportunities for spiritually enriching fellowship amongst us believers. And this is essential for our Christian journey. See, no one tries to climb a mountain alone. Mountaineers will always tell you they go in groups. They realize they need one another to reach the summit. Remember Hebrews that says... Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We ought not to neglect the horizontal relationships with other believers. We all need other believers to challenge us, to encourage us, to support us in our climb. Which leads me to the first point then here under this experience subject. 
that is simple, basic, but so essential. It's this, get into a fellowship. Get into a fellowship. If you're not plugged into the body of life of this church, you need to be. You need to be. You absolutely need to. Now, there are challenges in doing so, for sure. Sometimes it takes a while to find your niche, to find people that you really connect with. But if you've tried in the past and you feel that you've failed, not have much success, that's no excuse to stop trying. If you're not connected with others in fellowship, at some point, your spiritual growth, it will flatline. It will. And for most of you, that's going to mean getting in a small group or a Bible study of some sort. And In the coming weeks, we're going to make it very easy and very clear for you how you can better connect in the life of this church. And we can't stress this enough. You need to do this. It needs to be a priority in your life. It is a sign of healthy Christianity. And a lack of fellowship in your life is certainly a precursor, if not a clear indication, of spiritual stagnation. So if you're not in some kind of fellowship group already, get into one. Great listing of the opportunities for this are found on that fall events flyer you're going to get as you leave here today. Check that out. Take a step to get involved. And I think you will find that your growth and your sanctification will increase as you do. Now for a second point. But before I make this one, I think I need to be brutally honest. See, as I look at our fellowship ministries within the church, and particularly our small groups, I must confess that I'm concerned that our ministry as a whole is hitting somewhat of a spiritual plateau. This is certainly true for some small groups. There there are groups that have had great growth, growth in the past, but now they just seem to be spinning their wheels, unable to go any deeper with one another. And while there are certainly wonderful exceptions to this, I have to say that as a whole... As your pastor, I, feel that, I fear that the depth of the fellowship within our congregation is perhaps, as a whole, somewhat leveled off. And what's the solution to this? How can we keep going deeper and higher as a ministry? Well, here's one. Fellowship weekly. Fellowship weekly. It's true with many things, and this is also true for Christian fellowship, that you get out of it what you put into it. And many of you... You're just kind of skimming the surface in regards to the depth and involvement of Christian fellowship. See, to this day, many of our small groups, Bible studies, they don't connect more than twice a month, if that. And that meeting frequency will only get you so far. Eventually, you'll reach a plateau, and the growth will level off. So how do you get off that small group plateau? Meeting more frequently, almost weekly, is one answer. Before you get all defensive and say, well, that won't work. That can't work in my schedule. No way. Let me tell you, we have had many groups in our church that have begun meeting every single week. Now, some of them are creative about doing so. Perhaps they only meet as the entire group. If it's like a mixed gender group, maybe once, maybe twice a month. And then the smaller pockets within the, the group, the men, the women, they meet independently several times a month. That helps with child care. It allows people to gather more convenient times, like really early in the morning before work or during lunch when the kids are out at school. One thing that been, has been pretty consistent among our groups that have recently moved from bi-weekly or monthly meetings to basically weekly meetings is that their growth has skyrocketed. And they, their increased time together has allowed for much deeper relationships to form and to form more quickly. That leads to much more joy. People who once thought their group, and eh, it's okay, now they love their group. 
And they're so encouraged and built up by it. You see, because they're getting out of it what they put into it. And when a group doesn't meet very much, doesn't connect very much, you won't get much out of it. The group will plateau very quickly. But when a group makes a commitment to meet more frequently, suddenly the potential for that ministry grows because of the increased activity of the group. And the group is propelled off a stagnant plateau into much deeper deeper and richer, richer experience of fellowship. Now this does require some sacrifice. It does require some planning. But if done right, weekly fellowship gatherings can substantially help people climb the mountain towards upward, substantially, to higher spiritual growth. Fellowshipping weekly is one way you can increase the effectiveness of your fellowship experience, of our ministry. And another is this, fellowship more deeply. Fellowship more deeply. Now, this point goes hand in hand with the previous one because if you fellowship more frequently, hopefully you're likely to fellowship more deeply. And there are some wonderful, incredible ways that you can fellowship more deeply with believers that will help you dramatically climb more towards the summit. Let me give you one example of how this can be done by telling you about a somewhat covert little initiative that's happening at Bethel right now. It's called the Barnabas Project. And this is essentially a new men's ministry and leadership development initiative. We've invited around 70 men to participate in the kind of pilot program. And most of these guys, they're they're men on staff, they're elders, they're deacons, fellowship leaders, some small group leaders. And they're experiencing some truly deep fellowship with one another. In addition to monthly meetings and some mentorship by pastors, all these guys are in a small group with two, maybe three other men. And these groups meet Almost every week, every week, usually at very convenient times for these guys, like early in the morning before work, so that participating in it doesn't require another night out. And these men meet in these groups for one hour, pretty much every week, and here's what they do. They talk about the Bible reading they've done that week. See, all these guys, they've come into reading 20 to 25 chapters of Scripture every single week. They're all reading the same thing. They've decided this is our plan, this is what we're going to read, and they get together. They do that privately throughout the week. They get together and they talk about it. What did you learn? How did God's words minister to you this week as you read it? And as they do so, they eventually discuss some difficult things with one another. Like, how was your time in the Word this week? How's your prayer life going? How's your purity and your Christ-likeness this week? How well did you care for your family, serve in ministry? How would you do in sharing the gospel this week? And as these things are discussed, sin is confessed. Real life is shared. Accountability takes place. Meaningful prayer happens. And rich, iron-sharpening, iron kind of experience takes place in these very small groups of just two, three, four men every week. Many of the guys in these groups, they will tell you that this experience has been a huge help to their spiritual life. Many of them might even tell you that they were on a spiritual plateau for some time. But now they've begun to climb the mountain again with intensity they haven't experienced before. This is deep, impactful fellowship. And it's something I think that we all need. That's why right now, I'd like to challenge all of our small groups to consider forming smaller core groups within their group. To meet as frequently as possible. Not to do another Bible study, but just to share how you're growing in the Word that week. And to talk about how you need to grow more into Christ-likeness. Because if you feel that your life has hit, Christian life has hit a plateau... I have a hard time thinking of something that will catapult you further to grow than meeting in a small group of people just like this to do this very thing. And it's my hope that a year or two from now, 
that this type of frequent and very deep fellowship will not be limited to just a, a few small groups of men within our church, but it will be a pervasive culture throughout our entire congregation. This type of deep, frequent, meaningful fellowship as we take this journey up this mountain together. Consider how you might move towards this in your own fellowship circles. I highly encourage you, take up that challenge. If you say that this idea or the others I've mentioned to increase or deepen your Christian activity, you say, I don't, I don't like those, or I don't have time for them, then I question whether you're really serious about climbing the mountain. Is it possible you're content on a plateau? Do you feel that you're journeying upward? When you look at your life, are you much more like Christ than you were a year ago? Are you closer to God now than you were just a few months ago? Is your prayer life deepening? Is your Bible reading expanding? Is your ministry growing? Are you just remaining in a place of comfort and stability? What a shame it would be for us to just to camp out in one place and never even come close to taking in the view from the summit. It's hard work to get there. It requires sacrifice, making some hard decisions, sticking to some difficult commitments. But this is our God-ordained purpose. To go on this journey with reckless abandon because the summit is worth it. Are you headed there now? Are you stuck on a plateau? If you're stuck, I think now's the time. Pack up your gear. Put your boots back on. Get off the plateau. Don't let anything hold you back. Come on, church. Let's go for the summit. Would you pray with me?